0: Cast now with Let's get ready to listen to
1: your favorite artists Outrocast. I'm trying to look at the pictures on the wall in the background to see if I can recognize
2: oh thank you I mean the story on on those is until about 2005. They were giving like the eight by elevens because there's no gifts and all that. And I saved them all. My wife said, why don't we buy frames and put them up? So there's none of you yet, but I mean, if there's an old Greg eight by eleven, we'll we'll put it up on the wall. How's that? I'll send you one. <laughs> I mean, there's Gallagher and Dice Clay and Wing New. It looks like it
1: looks like there's a Gene, it looks like Gene Simmons right there, just to your Wow.
2: Left. You've got eyes on you. Yeah, there Gene Simmons was very happy to give 8 by 11s at a press day. So, uh, <laughs> of course. and that was in like 2019. So, there you go. <laughs> but uh aside from having to talk to media scum, how's your day going, Greg? Uh
1: no, it's good. It's going great. Look, I mean, it's nice when uh when you work for a year straight on something and and people want to talk to you. So, look, thank you for wanting to talk to me cuz you could have just been hanging more pictures and not even given a shit, but you do. So thank you.
2: Well, that was actually going to be one of my first questions. Uh, when did you actually wrap this? Because TV has different lead times than movies. And it looks like they announced that it was coming back around February for season three.
1: Yeah, well, I guess uh, part of the good news was when we were shooting season two, the network was so excited and happy with what we were doing that they... Um, They just said, oh, you should just shoot season three now as well. Do you have the scripts ready? And I was like, yeah, we have, I think we had 10 of the 12 scripts done. So we just kept shooting. So we started prepping in August. We shot September until February. And then we posted season two, finished it. And then we posted season three. I'm still literally um, putting the finishing touches on. We have another animated episode coming up in season 3 so we're putting oh. the finishing touches on that right now
2: that's something that blows my mind your productivity and your ability to juggle so many things at once it's not like you just work on one show one project at a time so are the shows actually picked in order or no. do you okay so they they're like ten at a time in different states
1: well we you know we shoot them in order of ease of production you know like we'll pair episodes. We also like to pair episodes with directors, you know, like Joe Lynch. Joe Lynch got a couple. Um, I got some. Axel Carolyn got some. John Harrison got some. Rusty Cundiff. You know, we kind of pair the episodes. And it's always makes me laugh because a director will tell me that this one particular episode is their favorite script. But mm-hmm. then by the time the episodes are done, the one that they that they was second in the race ends up being the better episode. I don't know why. It's just kind of funny. Um, so we end up pairing them for production. And then once we get them together, you know, I want to make sure that when the audience watches the show, that they're not getting the same theme. Some of them are a little more lighthearted, some right. are a little scarier. So the experience of each episode is different. You're never, you're not getting one episode with with like a really scary episode and a, a story and then a really lighthearted one. So I, I kind of like, you know, giving the audience uh, something different all the time.
2: You would you definitely do, not putting any spoilers in here, but the Queen Bee episode, one of the cool things about that episode is she has real pop star sounding music. Is that something that you have at the beginning or is that the last thing that gets put in there?
1: Uh, we actually used, our actresses own songs for that. Cause she, I worked with her on Lovecraft Country and she was, she was great. So we licensed her actual music. And, you know, the, the, the thing about Queen Bee is not only is it sort of a John Carpenter kind of tribute because it has, you know, it feels a lot like Halloween 2 to me because of the hospital set, um, but you know, there's a lot. There's a, I, I responded to that episode because I liked that it was a younger cast mm-hmm. and that that it it felt a little more current than some of our other episodes, which feel have a retro feel because I kind of yes. like that retro vibe. But you know, I mean, it talk. There's a lot in there too about like um, social media and toxic fandom and oh. what people what people. Really um, feel that they're entitled to, um, especially in this day and age. So, you know, every once in a while we throw a little social commentary into the into the the genre mix because it seems to be the most palatable. You know,
2: I also dig the visuals, the the animation, comic like strips that find their way into the episode. Similar question: Is that at the end of it, or is that being made simultaneously with everything else?
1: Well, we usually do the animation in post. You know, we, we have the, they're written in there um, as part of the script. We, we write the teasers and we write the bumpers. And, you know, in, in season one, we, we used Rick Catazone, who had worked on the original Creep Show, who's a very dear old friend of mine. Um, when we got into season two, we had a company that did our animated Survivor Type and Twittering from the Circus of the Dead episode. So, we kind of took a little bit of a departure from the traditional animation. Uh, so it's it, it, it's a little sketchier, and it kind of feels it feels a little more Rick and Morty kind of <laughs> vibe, which I think again sort of helps bridge bridge our audience uh, a little a little differently.
2: How do you? And I like them all, you know. Of course, why wouldn't you like the thing that you work hundreds of? thousands of hours on of course to say the least but i was curious how you personally decide which episodes to take on because it's not like okay greg is going to do the first one and then the seventh one you're the showrunner of course but you seem to direct like two or three episodes a season
1: uh you know i i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that when i read the stories or i read the pitch um you know rob Schraub's public television of the dead or dana gold's um you know, uh, Night Living Late Show. As soon as I read those, I, I had to make them. I I had to make them because they spoke to me in some, in some capacity uh, as a fan and as a lover of the genre. So, you know, Shapeshifters Anonymous was, was, a, was really, I feel like the turning point for Creepshow for me, because I, I wanted to do a, like if Tim Burton was going to direct a creep show episode, like it was, I read that short story and it was so outrageous and so over the top. And right when you thought that it couldn't get any more out, out there, we took it one step further. And I really, when I directed that episode and I had Anna Camp and, and Adam Pally and Frank Nicotero, and I, I was giggling on set. I really realized the freedom of letting comic actors sort of improv a little bit. And that was something that I, you know, you don't really get a lot of uh, comic improv on The Walking Dead. So um, I, I, it really kind of opened my eyes to embracing some lighthearted elements to the show. So by the time we got to the end of season two and I had Justin Long and Darcy Carden, two brilliant comic oh. actors, um, I was I was sort of in love with the show uh, on a different level than I was in season one. Season one was okay. I have I have a responsibility to pay tribute and respect to George Romero and Stephen King, and I felt like season two. I kind of I got a lot more confidence. Um, so when we got into the stories for season three, and we got into Queen Bee and drug traffic, which you haven't seen yet, skeletons in the closet, familiar, and mom, they're they're all very different, but. You know, if I read the script and, I, and I, I, I want to direct it, then then that's sort of like, it goes to the network. I'm doing this one, I'm doing this one. Um, you know, and I do get really attached to all the stories because I work really closely with the writers in terms of development. You know, Josh Mallerman and I work really well together on House of the Head in season one um, in terms of sort of visualizing the stories, and and I feel like with Familiar, we got to a point, too, where the ending was sort of existed out of a collaboration um, between he and I, and Eric and Michael that wrote Queen Bee, it's kind of the same situation, you know. Uh, They, it's funny, I don't know, they enjoy collaborating with me because they look at me as like, well, you're Greg Nicotero, you've done all these movies and special effects. Um, I don't see it that way. I see it as like, a bunch of creative guys getting together and brainstorming ideas—that's really a lot of fun. And we—I I feel like we've done really well. You know, when when we did an episode called Drug Traffic, Maddie Doe, um, who lives in Laos with her husband Chris, they pitched a great episode. And I, my first note to her was, "Lean into your heritage and and come up with this crazy wild creature that that." people probably don't know about. And we ended up with one of the most unique creatures that I've ever been a part of. And it's based on like folklore, like mythology. So I I was really proud to be able to let her lean into her, her heritage when telling that story.
2: I believe I'm getting the hook unless there's time for one more quick question. Go for it. Okay. That one quick question comes from a big fan of yours named Brog Zeichner, and he wanted to know, was Invasion USA a pleasure to work on with Mr. Chuck Norris?
1: <laughs> oh my God, you know, I had, I had short, hair, short hair and a short beard, uh, and a lot of people thought they would see me in the parking lot and thought that I was Chuck Norris because we had kind of a similar hairstyle. You know, that was the second movie I ever worked on. It was after Day of the Dead. And it was very different because it wasn't a horror movie. So, you know, getting, getting a chance to do like trauma wounds and dead bodies and, and things like that, it was a very different experience. And that was the first time that I had left Pittsburgh um, to work. We shot, in, uh, we shot in Miami, we shot in Lake Okeechobee, and we ended in Atlanta. And I think the funniest thing was the prop guy, Scott Stevens, Came to me one day and he's like, How much money do you guys make on this show? And I said, Well, I said, I make like 400 bucks a week. And he went, What? He said, I spend more money on earplugs a week than you make. But you know what? I didn't care. I was working for Tom Savini. I was, I was sort of exploring my career options. It was before I had moved to Los Angeles. So, I just had a great time doing it, and and being able to travel around Florida and Georgia and shooting, and um, with Joe Zito who directed the Prowler, and um, it was great. It was fun.
2: Thank you so much for your time. Looking forward to everything to come from you, and thanks for the many years of great entertainment, Greg.
1: I appreciate that. Thank you. Take care.
2: Okay guys thank you for doing it i to say that it's an honor and a pleasure to be speaking with you know the planet's biggest touring band would be <laughs> an understatement right there but when did you know that you were coming to new york and la for these gigs was this planned a long time ago
0: yeah, it's been in the it's been in the plans for a while and we got offered the um to play at bottle rock um that was that was really cool we're really proud of that and we've managed to um, build a little you know, some shows around that. Um, but it was a little bit touch and go, obviously with the COVID situation back home. So we weren't sure whether or not we are going to make it, but we're happy, we, we're happy we managed to get hit.
3: We got the phone call on, we were leaving Sunday night. We got the phone call Sunday morning that we had to pack and go. <laughs> it was that touch and go.
2: It Was that the infamous show where Guns N' Roses had the stage, uh, had the plug pulled on them mid-show? That's the one. Yep.
3: That was the same day as us, yeah.
2: So was that your first ever gig in the States?
0: No, we've played it a handful of shows over the years. Um, But I think it's uh, this is our most kind of substantial shows. You know, they're the biggest shows we've played.
2: Yeah, Webster Hall is a real deal venue. A lot of bands for their first tour, when they don't know, hey, how many people are going to come out? They do what are called underplays, where it's like, we can bring a thousand people. Let's play a place that holds two hundred people. You guys okay. are going straight into it with a place that holds two thousand ish.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the way we do things. We've always done that back home and everywhere, really, in our entire career. We kind of, I don't know. You gotta, you gotta aim high. You gotta, uh, you gotta take some risks.
2: Yeah. For sure. So it's great to see that these gigs are happening, just New York and L.A. Do you think if these goes great, that we might see another tour six to 12 months down the line where you hit more cities?
0: 100 percent. 100 percent.
2: OK. New York, L.A. Both of you, first time in New York or L.A.? No,
0: nah,
3: we've, we've both been here a few times. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time in New York. I've got A lot of friends who live there. Um, there's Actually, a lot of Kiwi, like ex-Kiwi musicians. That live there so I end up sleeping on their couch most of the time <laughs> um, and uh, it's always pretty righteous
0: but yeah we we've, we've spent a bit of time in both places yeah I forget the tour, the festival that we did in New York it's that kind of um, CMJ CMJ oh CMJ
2: the infamous South by Southwest equivalent of New York but yeah. And smaller
3: yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah we did it's funny we did South by and then immediately did CMJ afterwards and it's quite a different vibe
0: But it's great to in New York. And we've done some recording there, too. Work with um, David Kahn out of New York. We've done a couple of songs with him, which is pretty cool. Really?
2: Yeah. Wow. What a Part of my ignorance here. Now, the band is 13-ish years old, right? So when... Okay. Uh, Wikipedia is wrong. Um, So (laughs) around when did you work with David Kahn?
0: That must have been 2016.
2: Okay. So post-McCartney.
3: It was for our second album. Yeah, it was for a second album. I actually pa- I played on one of McCartney's basses when I was in there because he, he just left it at um, Khan's studio. So that was pretty cool. It's actually featured on one of the songs, which is dope. Which song is that? A song called So High.
2: Okay. Okay. So I'm new to your catalog, but yep. I'm really into what it is that I've heard. If we take a song like All She Wrote, the lyrics about the young people want to be older, the older people want to be younger. When that was written, was there a, oh, my God, we just wrote an amazing thing here? Or is that just like a those lyrics were just spit out and you went next?
0: Um, there's kind of a little bit of both of that stuff. When you're Sometimes when you're writing a song, things just kind of fall out. And that song was definitely one of those. It was, it was part of a, a run of sessions where we were, we were quite prolific and things were really falling out of us. And that song happened quite quickly. And I don't think it was till after, like, back a few days later, listening through it. I was like, "This is actually quite, quite profound." This <laughs> it's
3: one of those weird yeah. lines as well. It's like, you, it's almost, I don't know. You almost feel like guilty or like, is this too like on the? You know, is it too simplified? But it's like a deep truth. Yeah. you'll know, but yeah. why has no one put it in a song before? Is there a reason for that? <laughs> is it tacky or, but um, it resonates with everyone,
2: Yeah, it is one of the most prophetic, smart observations that can be in a song. And at the same time, it's a super poppy, catchy song. So it's one of those things where it really catches you off guard as a listener to hear something like that in something catchy. So a lot of bands in your situation might go, oh, this is too smart. Mm." (laughs) Let's what rhymes better? But... (laughs) But uh, you used, and that's really commendable. Then another song of yours that caught my ear, Rolling Stone. Uh, Was that because you're readers of Rolling Stone? Is that the earmark for success out there? Tell me more about that.
0: Um, That was really um, written as a relationship song and um, how much uh, being in a band and whatever grade of success you you encounter, how much can really um, alter you and I was singing a lot about the um, Papa was a Rolling Stone, and and you know um, we pull on a lot of uh, classic references. We're always trying to balance. so many so many things we want to say and get across in our songs that that are not always um, not always presentable through like your traditional songwriting styles or even with the English language or songwriting techniques. So like I think you, if people see our catalog, it really we really love to delve in and mix and match we love the idea of juxtapositions we love the we love to try that what you're saying you know you perk up it's something that you are uh, that feels nostalgic but it's but it's new and there's a really fine fine balance we're always trying to get into our music
2: That's a really good point, because the term Rolling Stone could mean 10 things to 10 people. For some people, it's the music magazine. Well, what used to be a music magazine. (laughs) For some people, it is Papa was a Rolling Stone, which is a song about basically a deadbeat dad. For other people, they might go to the Bob Dylan lyric. Other Mm -hmm. people might go to the song, the cover of the Rolling Stone from the 70s by, by I think, Dr. Hook. So. What I was curious about is, is there a special New Zealand or Asia Pacific region, Rolling Stone magazine, or did you get the, the American version out there?
0: I think there is an Australian version. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but I, I'm not sure how recent that is. For all purposes, we were we are most accustomed to the American version.
2: Got it. So what were the music publications that both of you grew up reading? that that was kind of the end-all be-all that you wanted to be on the cover of?
3: Uh, well, it probably speaks to like the different backgrounds of everyone in the band, but I used to listen, uh, uh read like NME because I was kind of like into punk kind of scenes. So, but Rolling Stone, I did like a lot. Um, I was, once I got into the music scene, I became a bit of a nerd about music stuff. So I'd read like drummer magazines and bass player uh, magazines and like yeah. all that stuff, you know, like try and learn stuff that way. But yeah, I was, I was Enemy and and Rolling Stone probably.
0: Yeah, mine was the Source. Really, <laughs> I, was big, I was a big like hip hop R and B fan uh, growing up. And I just thought that was the that was the bees the bees knees. The bees knees.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that phrase. I was just sent some
2: hot sauce on there. That's called the bees knees. That's on the. Oh, yeah. it, it's kind of funny how that phrase has come back, but the the Source was there a local non U S version of the
0: Source. Um, I don't think there was. New Zealand really latched on to American culture when um, you know in the in the early thousands, and um, hip hop was a was a really um, really big thing. Reggae is really important to New Zealand music, and we're pretty diverse across the board. But particularly oh, in my, where I grew up, um, hip hop and R and B was um, like was paramount. New Zealand music wasn't really respected the way it is now and held up in the same regard as it it was back then um it wasn't it wasn't wasn't, it wasn't normal to listen to local music but that has all changed now
2: oh absolutely like if you want to play into dumb stereotypes i would say there's kind of three evolutions of america's uh relationship to new zealand culture and the first would be okay what bad stereotypes we have okay the bushwhackers the wrestling tag (laughs)
1: that
2: would be like the first thing and then like the next wave would be like fly to the concords because from what i hear they weren't a big deal in new zealand it was just an american thing is that correct yeah yeah Yeah, totally okay and then the next wave is you go wait kimbra and then you realize wait there's all these huge artists that are from new zealand wait Crowded house are really from New Zealand and not from Australia. And then uh, yeah. you kind of realize, oh, small country, but Jin Wigmore, you know, all these great artists are from there. When did you start to notice that New Zealand was making an impact internationally?
3: Well, I it was around the mid-2000s um, when there was a lot more New Zealand music on New Zealand radio at, at any rate. And then I think from that it started kind of filtering into the rest of the world. You know, you crowd a house and that kind of thing. That was really an anomaly. It was, you know, it seemed impossible, but just slowly, you know, people started getting, you know, tours over here and, you know, maybe TV show syncs and all that kind of stuff. And you started to think, oh, okay, maybe we can actually do this. Um, Yeah, it was kind of like a slow build, right?
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so it's an interesting position where you guys in your region of the world, you will be fine for many, many, many years to come, but you want to try something new and take a big risk by coming to the States. We all know it's a it's what we call a loss leader, where at first it's you're spending your own money to make this happen.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: then the goal is possibly becomes an annual US tour and all that. Do you have any goals for the States or is this not a really goal-oriented band?
0: Um, we are, a, I think, we are a goal. We're a challenge-oriented band. Um, that's a goal of sorts, I suppose. Um, but to say, <clears throat> to say specifically, we want to be popular. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? But I think that the goals are a little like simpler than that. We definitely want to broaden our horizons and challenge ourselves creatively. And we're always trying to do something different, um, keep the listener get- guessing. Um, and at the, I mean, guess it, at the. At the core of it, we wanna write our music. We want to be respected as musicians. And I think done done right, then it's just a matter of time before the rest of the world wakes up to, to what we have.
3: Yeah, I think that's really it, right? We, we've got the music, we've got the, I mean, our, our live shows second to none in the world. Um, we've been doing this for years and we're the best at it. And um, our songs are, you know, second to none also. And uh, we really just need, like Matt says, people to, you know, to wake up and and hear it. We need that. We need the window cracked uh, in in some neighborhood home so the rest of the neighborhood starts (laughs) jamming.
2: Cool. Another thing I like about you guys beyond the music, beyond the attitude, beyond the story, you created music scholarships to foster local arts. Mm. Wow. How did that one
0: come up? Well the story, we started in a university town in New Zealand, where um, we lived in number 660 Castle Street, which is where um, we we got the name. Um, and it was always a bit of a pipe dream for us to be, you know, we'd laugh about, oh, one day we're going to buy the house that we lived in. And because that that house, the 660 house, it's become quite an icon in New Zealand. Um, for Kiwis, you know, there's like, there's the the beehive, which is the government house, there's the Sky Tower, and then there's the 660 house, they're all kind of on par in terms of the icon. Um, and recently we got an opportunity to buy the house and we teamed up with the university there where we're going to allow four scholarships to stay at at the house. Uh, we're going to be there helping them in you know, a mentorship type of deal and they get access to the performing arts school down there. So we're really proud of that. We're in a position to give back to a city that um, laid a platform for us to do this. Yeah.
2: The, the, the closest I can come to that is the second Paul McCartney reference of this interview is that he started up, I think it was called the Liverpool Institute, which kind of gave back to local students. And I think it was maybe tuition waived to those people. So I think we're learning here that 660 is the uh, New Zealand's equivalent of Paul McCartney.
3: God damn right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're big fans. We're the
0: Beatles of the 10. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Okay, top
2: that. So uh, two more questions, and then you're both free men. And the first one is for you both. Lockdown aside, I know that New Zealand was on the forefront of the world with touring where they controlled that stuff. And hence, I'm talking to the biggest band in the world of a certain era. Uh, <laughs> what was the last concert that you went to for fun?
1: Oh, my God.
3: Uh, I went and saw, uh, Courtney Barnett with the last, I don't know if you know Courtney Barnett.
2: Oh yeah. She, she's on the list of, well, first of all, is she from Australia, New Zealand, or both?
3: She's from Australia. Okay. She's from, uh, from Melbourne. Um, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of hers, have been yeah. since the EP, uh, first EP came out. Um, and, uh, finally got a chance. It was my first time seeing her. finally got a chance to, to see her in, in Auckland. She came and played, which was really cool. I can imagine
0: um i just i think i went to see like a, a friend's band play at like the power station the local the local um you know that that local venue in auckland which is kind of like the um what do you call that venue it's kind of like it's it's kind of like webster hall you know it's like when you come really? to auckland you play that venue it's like you're it's an arrival of sorts sure. um so yeah it was it was that it's been a long time since i've been to a gig, mm. an international one, because they, we, we haven't been able to for so long.
2: Is that power station venue named after the Robert Palmer, Duran Duran all-star band?
0: I don't know <laughs>
3: the answer to that. A guy named Peter Campbell owns it, and he seems like the kind of guy who might reference that, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a weird random coincidence here is, when I'm working during the day, I'll often have on this, this internet radio station called Auckland 80s. Of, of any 80s station in the world, yeah. I listen to the new zealand one because i like to say what were actually the hits and there'll be a random thing like santana had hits in the 80s okay <laughs> interesting right. you guys have have taste over here but power station like more than the one hit comes up so i was trying to figure if power station was randomly big in new zealand maybe maybe, maybe.
0: Outro